guy that is speaking, his name is Simon Sanook. I don't know Simon's faith. I don't know anything about that. This is, he's not a faith guy. Simon is a marketing business. He's a thinker. So he thinks about uh, the places that you and I interact with on a different level. And he understands uh, people and things like that. Um, I, I've been watching his TED Talks and all this stuff over the last couple of years. And the guy's just a profound thinker. So what we're going to do is we're going to watch a section of the talk that he gave. Um, if you want to watch the rest of this talk, it's 25 minutes. We're not going to watch 25 minutes this morning. We're going to watch eight minutes just to brace yourself. Okay? Uh, so we're going to watch eight minutes of that talk. Um, and then we're going to come back together, open up the scriptures, and see, see why the heck we watched eight minutes of this guy's talk. Um, but let me just set the stage. He's talking about, uh, in his context, I believe he's talking to a group of educators, college, uh, college leaders, and people that are um, offering college education. But he's also referencing business and politics and things like that. Uh, he's giving two different things. He says, some people are playing a finite game. That means they're measuring by certain standards, and there's going to be a winner or a loser. So this school wins and this school loses because this school did better. But he's also going to present a new concept to you, and it's called the infinite game. And I'm just going to let him explain it all to you. Uh, so hang with him. Some of you are going to love this because you're going to be caused to think on a different level. Some of you are going to check out halfway through, and I'll get you back when we're done. Okay? So we'll let that roll. If you have at least one competitor, you have a game. And there are two types of games. There are finite games, and there are infinite games. A finite game is defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed-upon objective, football. We all agree what the rules are before we begin play. We all agree that whoever has more points at the end of the set time period is the winner, and everybody goes home at the end, right? The game is a beginning, a middle, and an end. In an infinite game, there are known and unknown players the rules are changeable, and the objective is to perpetuate the game or stay in the game as long as possible. When we pit a finite player versus a finite player, the system is stable. Football is stable. When we pit an infinite player versus an infinite player, the system is also stable. The Cold War was stable because we could not have a winner or a loser, and what ends up happening is the players play until one drops out because they, have, they lack the resources or the will to continue to play. They run out of the will and resources. The game continues with them or without them. The player just leaves the game, right? Problems arise, however, when you pit a finite player versus an infinite player. Because one is playing to win and the other is playing to keep playing. And they make profoundly different strategic choices which ultimately uh, results in the finite player finding themselves in quagmire, running through will and resources trying to win. And this is what happened to the United States in Vietnam. It's not so much that the Americans lost the Vietnam War, it's that they were fighting the wrong game. Because the Americans were trying to beat the North Vietnamese, where the North Vietnamese were fighting for their lives. And a very different set of strategic choices was made, and invariably the United States will find themselves in quagmire and ran out of the will or the resources to play. They didn't lose, they dropped out of the game, right? So now this gets me thinking about other contexts in the world in which we live. 
business, politics, even education, right? Which is, uh, what game are we playing? There's no such thing as winning business. There's no such thing as uh, winning global politics. And there's definitely no such thing as winning education. But if we listen to the language of too many organizations, they don't know the game they're in. They talk about being the best. They talk about being number one. They talk about beating their competition. The problem is, there's no such thing. And any metrics that we choose, whether it's a ranking in a magazine that has made arbitrary choices about how to rank your universities and colleges, you had no say. Or one university that declares itself number one in X and another one that declares themselves in Y, we haven't agreed upon the time frames of the metrics. In other words, it's all smoke and mirrors, right? Which means if you're playing by those rules, it's becoming more and more difficult to maintain the resources to stay in the game. Money is becoming more difficult. It's becoming uh, what seems to be the primary objective, which it never was. And even the will of the people to commit their blood, sweat, and tears to see that your organization advances into the future. In other words, the staff, the teachers, even the students. It becomes more and more difficult. Let me give you a real-life example that sheds some light on what I'm talking about. I spoke at um, an education summit at Microsoft. I also spoke at an education summit at Apple. At the Microsoft Summit, the vast majority of the executives spent the vast majority of their presentations talking about how to beat Apple. At the Apple Summit, 100% of the executives spent 100% of their presentations talking about how to help teachers teach and how to help students learn. One was obsessed with where they were going, the other one was obsessed with their competition. Guess which one was in Quagmire? At the end of my talk at Microsoft, they gave me a gift. They gave me the new Zoom when it was a thing. This was Microsoft's response to the iPod. And this little piece of technology was absolutely incredible. It was beautifully designed. The user interface was intuitive and very simple to use. It was really brilliant, I have to say. So at the end of my Apple talk, I was sharing a taxi with a very senior Apple executive, employee number 54 to be exact. And I decided to stir the pot. I couldn't help myself. I charged him. I said, you know, Microsoft gave me their new Zoom, and it is so much better than your iPod Touch. To which he said, I have no doubt. And the conversation was over. Because the infinite player understands, sometimes your competitor has the better product, and sometimes you have the better product. And sometimes you're ahead, and sometimes you're behind. But there's no such thing as best, or first, or beating your competition. There's only ahead and behind. And the reality of an infinite game is you're actually only competing against yourself. That the objective every single day is how do we become a better version of our own institution this year than we were last year? How do we improve the quality of our culture? How do we improve the quality of the way we uh, uh, provide the service that we claim to be providing? How do we improve ourselves? That is the main point of being an infinite game. Because at the end of the day, we don't have the same metrics as everybody else, and we're not even necessarily playing to the same ends. So the question is, how do you play an infinite game? 
There are five pieces. It's a checklist, literally. You have to check them all off, and if you don't have them all checked off, you eventually slide back into the finite game. Here's what they are. I'll run through them quickly and then give you a little more depth on the view. Number one, you have to have a just cause. Number two, you have to have courageous leadership. Number three, you have to have trusting teams. Number four, you have to have a worthy rival. And number five, you have to have a flexible playbook. Okay, let's run through them really quickly. What is a just cause? So, I'll ask you a very simple question. Why does your organization exist? We don't need you. Clearly there's plenty of competition. Clearly people have plenty of choices. Even the things that you may specialize in, there are others that do a reasonably good job. They might even be better than you in some areas. So why do you exist? Providing education is table stakes. Everybody here does that. You can't rely on it. That's why the industry exists, not why your organization exists. That's like when I talk to healthcare companies and say, why does your organization exist? And they say, to help people be more healthy. Like, no kidding, thank you. But I know that the culture of one organization is different than the culture of another organization. There are cultural norms that wrap around the sense of purpose, cause, or belief. Great organizations understand their just cause, a cause so just that people would be willing to sacrifice to see the advancement of that cause. Sacrifice comes in many forms. It may, might mean um, working longer hours, giving you my best ideas, turning down a better job that offers me more money to stay here because I believe in what you're doing and I want to see that advanced. One of my favorite examples of a just cause is the Declaration of Independence. Our founding fathers declared, literally wrote down, they declared why we need in our own country. All men are created equal. Endowed with these unalienable rights amongst which include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They were never against Britain. The whole point is not to be against something, but to stand for something. Britain was simply standing in the way of them advancing their cause. And though they won independence, there are always finite games within it. Though they won independence, that didn't mean that they had now provided all men are equal. Now the real heavy lifting began. Smart dude. Sees life on a different playing field than many of us. Um, but when Sam shared this again the other day, it just caused me to. I can't even log into my own computer right now. It caused me to reflect on our church. Um, and, and, and I've been looking at a lot of these things and, and, and even other things that people like this, um, my brother's marketing uh, genius sort of thing, people hire him to teach them how to market their companies, so he's a resource, and, and when I talk to him, it causes me to think about things like this, and, and as a church, can we communicate these things, right, can we communicate these things, so according to citydata.com, which you can check my reference online if you choose to. Anybody want to guess how many churches exist in Saline County? 300 is a guess. Anybody want to guess? 
170. Anybody else? Going once, going twice. <laughs> Mark's our winner. I wish I could give you a prize. Uh, according to citydata.com, there are 145 churches in Saline County, Arkansas. 145. So, uh, because I lack better um, vocabulary right now, uh, some people would say, for the sake of his discussion, some people would say, as a church, we have plenty of competition. Now, we don't view churches as competition, but I'm just saying for lack. There's a lot of options in our county. If somebody were to think, where am I going to get up and go to church this morning, they would have 145 options. Okay? I know we're not competing against anybody. Uh, but there's 120,000 people. 120,000 people. Should they get up on Sunday, they would have 145 churches to choose from. Phew. So here's my next question for you. What are the metrics that the average Joe uses to determine which church he will attend? Right? So what are the metrics, the measurements for saying 120,000 people looking at 145 churches, and they're measuring those churches by certain metrics, certain standards, certain measurements, certain things in order to determine which one they want to engage with. What are those metrics? What did you say? Location. Location. Are they close to me or not? Okay. What else? Size. Now that's a funny thing because depending on which one of your 120,000 people depends on which one you're looking for. Some people are looking for 30 people they can come to. Some people are looking for 3,000 people they can come to. Right? So that's all relative to the person using the metric. What else? What are some other metrics? People we know. Uh, connections. Okay? What else? Nomination. <laughs> we almost lost half our congregation last week because I got cinnamon rolls instead of donuts. Now, it was the half that's under 10 years old, but which turns to the question what is? Our just cause. Why do we exist? Right, so I could make the positive statement, but now we ask the question. And obviously this typically comes from, lack of better words, top down. This comes from leadership and gets passed along. I'm, I'm going to tell you why I started this journey to tell you why I believe we exist, right? Now, this may not be relevant to why you're a part, right? So you may be, and we got to this road six or eight months ago that me and Stephen are sitting across the table from each other saying, the reason people are a part of this is not the reason people that, that we exist. People have come for all different reasons, for all different metrics. But when you get here, I, as a leader, as a pastor, need to be able to communicate very clearly and directly why this church exists. 
doesn't mean this is the reason you came. But if you are going to, as Simon said, pour out your blood, sweat, and tears to see our why advance, then I need to be able to tell you very directly and clearly why we exist. Because there's 145 other options. And I could have got a ministry role, and I did have a ministry role at one of those options. So why did I leave? Why did we sacrifice everything to start something new? Why do I get up and literally blood, sweat, and tears in a self-employed business that has no guarantees in order to pursue this? Why? So, over the last number of years, I have perceived a significant disconnect between two things. The city and the church. A big disconnect between the city and the church. And the observation that I have had is that that disconnect is not growing closer, but it is growing larger. The further we go, I believe what I'm observing is that the church is getting more and more disconnected from the city. The struggle that I have and the struggle that caused me to pursue this is the gospel is the greatest news ever communicated. It is the best thing you could hear or tell or pass on. The gospel, the kingdom of God, that God in the flesh came to man to take all humanity's sin upon himself so that you may no longer be a slave to sin, but that you may be free in Christ. That you may not just have life, but you can have life everlasting. Not just that you could have eternity, but that you could have it abundant. You could have everything. Everything you've ever longed for, hoped for, is available in the gospel, and the church carries that message, but when the church is increasingly being disconnected from the city, there is no means of communication for which the gospel can be made known and be received. Now the struggle is, as churches, we've done our best to host events, to engage, to do this, to do that, and hoping to build a bridge, a connection between the church and the city. But even my best ideas, I'm not pointing at anybody else, I'm saying even the, the ideas that I came up with, the ideas that I hoped would be an answer for bridging and making that connection, even that, in the end, felt like we were reaching across the fence, hoping that the city would come into our field. Or it wasn't really a connection. It's just a hope that the city would stop everything the city does so they could come be a part of everything we do. And that didn't really feel like a connection to me. It didn't really feel like we were creating that line of communication. Those in the church and the church as a whole, in my belief, what I've observed, have minimal influence in the city and we, we lack the ability to help those in the city Worship, obey, and be transformed by Jesus. A number of months ago, we declared that that's our purpose. We are to 
increasingly worship, obey, and be transformed by Jesus. And then help others do the same. That's our purpose. But like he said, duh, that's the purpose of the church. That's the Great Commission. That's what every church exists for. I mean, that's general. That's like if you are a church that is Bible-believing, Jesus-following, you can say that in a hundred different ways, but ultimately we're saying the same thing. We want to increasingly worship, obey, and be transformed by Jesus, and then we want to help others do the same. That's a Great Commission. That's just how we communicate it. It doesn't communicate why we exist. It doesn't communicate why we exist. So what is our just cause? Why do we exist? To connect the city and the church to increase, to increase the church's ability to do what the church exists to do. increasingly worship, obey, and be transformed by Jesus. Why does City Church Salt County exist? To increase the connection between the church and the city to increase our ability to do what we were created to do. That's why this church exists in the plethora of churches that exist in our county. So let me ask you this. If this is the cause, then what is the direction or the focus that we would have? If our reason, if our why, is to connect the city and the church to increase our ability to make disciples, then what would our focus become? Give you a quick little hint. The word is already on the board. This is us. That's us, right? So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna help you out real quick because nobody wants to get the question wrong. I understand that feeling. It's so much better to ask the question than to be one answering the question. This is us, and if if we make the church the sole focus, it's like we're standing in a mirror, right? And if we only focus on ourselves, then we're oblivious to everything going on around us. So obviously that wouldn't be like the only answer. So I think if our why is to connect the church with the city so that we might increase our ability to do this, then a good place to start would be the city. It's a logical deduction for me we would begin to observe and focus on the city. Now, the city has various representations, does it not? We spent the first year and a half. What area of the city, Mark, have we spent the first year and a half talking a lot about and focusing on? No, that's the second section. What was the first section? Hmm? 
Well, I don't know, but if, as right. we were there, we were there and we were talking a lot. What was the first sermon series that you remember? Saying Neighbors. Neighbors. One representation of our city is the neighborhood. And a long time ago, like this is your house, let's let our focus be on those that live in our square, every house around us. It's your neighborhood. It's a representation of the city. That's why we pushed you into your neighborhoods. That's why we said be the most hospitable, the most engaging, the most neighbor-focused, serving, loving, and proclaiming good news to your neighborhood because the neighborhood is a representation of the city. And we want you to love, serve, and proclaim good news to each other and others in the context of your neighborhood so that we can fulfill the Great Commission in increasingly worshiping, obeying, and helping people be transformed by the message of Jesus. Neighborhood. Now Mark already gave you the answer. Another representation of the city, now that we've been put in this place, is downtown. downtown. Our vision hasn't changed. Our opportunity has changed. It's just another representation of the city. Another representation of the city. Now we have presence and opportunities downtown. Right? So here we are in our space, and then we look out our door, and we've got people all around us in this downtown district. That's why we've turned our eyes there. We've turned our focus there so that we might fulfill the Great Commission by connecting the church and the city to increasingly worship, obey, and be transformed by Jesus. Okay? So, I left my Bible in my backpack. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to get some scriptural counsel from Jesus here. Matthew chapter 20. That was a long on-ramp. Thanks for hanging with me. I have observed in my time in ministry um, that God has equipped even, even people that don't pursue the world through a scriptural, biblical worldview, even they have wisdom in how they see the world. Like marketing gurus and business gurus like Simon, there's something for me to learn from him so that as I turn back to the scriptures, I can be more effective in engaging the city with the gospel. So I think they just understand different things that sometimes I don't understand. So that's why I watch TED Talks occasionally. Matthew 20. We're going to start in 17. While going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the twelve disciples aside and privately and said to them on the way, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day he will he will be raised. Who is the Son of Man that Jesus is talking about? Himself. He's talking about Himself. Going to a whole different conversation about why He did that, but for now just recognize He's talking about Himself as they enter into Jerusalem. 
Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask for something. What do you want? He asked her. <laughs> I always read that and think Jesus might have been rude. Like, what do you want? No, but I don't think he did it like that. Uh, so just me reading into it. What, what do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit one at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? We're able, they said to him. He told them, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like this among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? Before we move on, Jesus was going where? Jerusalem, where he would encounter what? The religious leaders, chief priests, and Pharisees, and what were they going to do? It's in that first passage there. You'll be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to... Well, it's interesting. It says they'll condemn him to death and then these religious leaders hand him over to the Gentiles who do exactly what you just said. He'll be flogged, um, mocked, and crucified. Okay, so Jesus going into the city will encounter religious leaders who want him to die, so therefore they will hand him over to the Gentiles. Somebody give me a quick definition of the word Gentile so that we're all on the same page. Non-Jews. Anybody in here not a Jew? You're a Gentile. Welcome to the story. Okay? So, the religious leaders, the Jewish people, will hand him over to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, who will therefore fulfill what they wanted to see happen. They will mock him, flog him, and crucify him, but then the Father will raise him back to life three days later. But then he encounters somebody else in the city, and it was the people that he brought with him. And then you've got, I love this, you got, you got Mrs. Zebedee. I don't think that's her real name, but that's what we're calling her. The, the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that was their father. But So Mrs. Zebedee, and she says to Jesus, what, what was the request she made? Let my boys 
sit next to you in the kingdom. Like when Jesus returns and establishes His kingdom on a new earth, I want my boys at at your right and I want my boy at your left. Man, that's just a good mama, right? What's the best for our boys? But here's what I want you to observe. Here's, Here's what I observed in this. As Jesus was in the city, the religious leaders, everybody... Everybody from the religious leaders to the Gentiles to those two boys. When he was in the city, everybody wants to be out front. Everybody wants to jockey for position. The reason the religious leaders wanted him dead because he was a threat to their position. He was a threat to their authority. He was a threat to their power and their finances. So we want Jesus out of the picture because we perceive that he's moving into the front and that's our position and when it came to the gentiles the gentiles went ahead and killed him flogged him beat him crucified him because they believed that he was a threat to rome and the empire now rome is on top rome is out front and anyone who would come up and 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 give pressure against our position out front we can wipe out And even Miss Zebedee perceived Jesus to be a a means to her boy's gain. Ah, Because we know Jesus. Because we're with Jesus. We're going to make this request. Let my boys be right up front. In the city, Jesus encountered many people and everybody wants to be out front. Here's a question for you. What do we believe exists out front? What is it that we as people really want? What do we believe? If we get that position out front, people see us, they recognize us, we're in that place. What is it we really want that we think comes with that? Attention. Out front. We believe we'll find attention, possibly love or admiration. What else? What do we believe exists out front? Why do we pursue it so hard? Hmm? Conclusion? Can we call that victory? conclusion we've we've won whatever we're fighting for we we're the winners out front you're victorious success Success. if everybody sees me i'm a successful man and i want everybody to see that i'm a successful man we believe that out front there's freedom no longer suppressed by those who are now out front because I'll be out front. Out from underneath all those other people. Somebody over here said acceptance. Acceptance? Did they say it so quiet they couldn't be heard? <laughs> I'll get a lecture next time. <laughs> the air conditioner, once fall hits, we'll be able to talk at a normal level, but until we get into September, here's where we are. Acceptance. We think that if we're out front, People are going to like us. Boy, if the Zebedee boys could just sit right next to Jesus in the kingdom. 
I'll be accepted by everybody there. They'll look at them as if, wow, look at those guys. Look at them. What else do we think exists out front? Anything? Rewards. Rewards. Be left alone? Oh, my goodness, that's a lie. That's a lie. Um, <laughs> peace. I think that goes with being left alone. We'll finally be, well, maybe internal peace, so let me say that. There's external and internal peace. So if I can get out front, it's quiet out front. I'll have external peace. And then if I get out front, then internally, because I've got all these things, I finally won, then I think I'll have that internal peace as well. So here we are. This is what we believe exists out front. This is what the religious leaders, the Gentile leaders, and those two boys, just, let's get out front. And anybody that's a threat to me getting out front needs to get behind me. Because I believe if I can stay out front, I got those things. So naturally, we believe that being last produces the opposite of all this. Flip the script on us. If we can get first, we'll have attention. But if we're last, I'm going to get overlooked. If I can get out front, I'm going to have love and admiration. But if I keep getting held back and I take the last position, what are they going to think of me? They're not going to admire me. They're going to look down on me. If we can get out front, we're going to have victory. But if I get in the back, I'm a loser. If I can get out front, I'll have success. But if I get in the back, I'm a failure. If I can get out front, I'll have freedom. But man, if I take that last position, then I'm going to be a slave. If we can get out front, there's acceptance. But if I get in the back, nobody cares. There's rewards in the front, and it's going to cost me everything in the back, right? And this is what we see. This is what everybody, that's why everybody wants to be out front, because you're afraid of being in the back. You're afraid of being the guy in the back. You're afraid of taking the last position because you think everything you long for exists out front. That's why that's what Jesus encountered. And that's also why the other ten disciples, when they heard what those two boys' mom requested, let's let my boys sit beside you. They said the other ten became indignant. They were angry. Not because those two had the potential to sit up front, because it was going to cost them everything they wanted. If those two boys get up front, then what do we get? Scraps? I don't even think it was about what those two could have got. I think it was what they would have missed by taking the back seat. Out front is a trap. Out front is a trap. The concept of being first is a trap. And it's always a comparison game. Always a comparison game. Jesus says, it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The concept of being out front, it's a comparison game. Me, them. 
And I'm always looking at them to see if I'm winning or losing. To see if I'm out front or from in behind. And I'm always comparing so that if I'm out front, if I'm winning, I'm that much closer to getting everything I want. But if I look across me and I'm viewing them and I perceive myself to be behind, I'm comparing myself to them, then now I believe I'm losing and we're losing sight of what it is we really want. Jesus said, not, not among us. Not among us. Not in this church. We're not going to operate like that. We're not because we don't believe or we don't exist to defeat others. We exist for the benefit of others. We don't exist to defeat others. We exist to the benefit of others. Simon said in his talk, he went to Microsoft Summit and the vast majority of the executives spent the vast majority of their presentation talking about how to beat Apple. It was a comparison game. Microsoft always looking at Apple to see if we're winning or losing. Are we winning or losing? Let's look across the aisle. Are we winning or losing? But then he said the Apple Summit spent 100% of their time, 100% of their talks talking about how to help teachers teach and help students learn. They were not looking over here to see if they're winning. They were looking at where they were going. Pursuing the why they exist. Avoiding the comparison game. Not worried about being out front. Worried about achieving the purpose for which we exist. So ultimately, in their context, Apple was a servant to fall behind teachers and students in this context. They let teachers and students be out front. We'll be behind holding you up. We're your servants. Helping you achieve what you exist to do. We exist for the benefit of others, not the victory over others. Let me ask you this question. If we believe Jesus that it shouldn't be that way among us. You want to be great? Become a servant. You want to be out front? Get in the back. Right? Everything you think exists out front, it's a lie. It's a comparison game. It's a trap. We're not going to believe it. So we're going to get in the back and we're going to become servants for the good of others. Not living for the good of our brand and our name and trying to get out front. If we believe Jesus... What will we spend our time talking about? What metrics might we avoid? If we believe Jesus, what would we possibly spend our time talking about? in your brain this morning. Sorry about that. Apple spent their time talking about teachers and students. We might spend our time talking about the city, its leaders, its businesses, its families, our neighbors. 
what's going on in the city, what is the city accomplishing, how can we get behind the city, how can we serve the city, how can we exist not for our own brand, trying to win against all other 145, that's not why we exist, we're not even going to look at the 145, they will run their race and we'll run our race. We support them, we love them, we encourage them, we hope that they advance in their race and in their why. But we exist for a different why, a very specific thing to us, and that's why God put us here. That's why He put us here, because it fits the why He created us. Right? So we might talk about the business, we might talk about Third Thursday, we might talk about what our city is doing in our downtown, and we might talk about how we can come underneath them, take the back seat to advance what's going on in our city, bridging the gap between the church and the city. Our sole existence is not to help the boutique down the street get more profitable, but if we engage in their life, then engaging in their life builds a bridge so that we might help them increasingly worship, obey, and be transformed by the person of Jesus. It is not that we exist for their profit, but engaging in their life, even if they don't want to engage in our activities, brings a connection point for us to fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave us. I think some of the metrics we might avoid talking about Maybe not talking about, we can talk about things, we can consider things, but it's not the sum total of our conversation. Is our preacher, is he preaching right? I mean, it's like, is his style like right to suit what Derek wants? Does Josh communicate in a way that pleases Derek? Does Josh communicate in a way that engages Stephen? I mean, it's like, as if, you know, it's like, is. Is it suiting our needs, or should we like have somebody that communicates different or better? Or? I just don't know that talking about having the right preacher in position is the most profitable thing. Now, some of you are probably going to raise up and become better communicators than me. We're going to let you communicate. Because it's not even about me being a sole communicator. If you guys communicating in this context is a more profitable thing for our city, then you're going to communicate in this context. Okay? This isn't about me, it's about the city. We're probably not going to make sure that we have the most outrageous, awesome music ministry on Sunday morning. Do we want music to be excellent? Absolutely. Is it going to be the sum total of our conversation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, because our music ministry is not in competition with First Baptist. We're not going to ask what they're doing so that we might take from it and do it better. We're just not going to have that conversation. We're going to ask what the business across town is doing so that we might engage in that instead of asking what the church across town is doing so that we might reproduce that. Make sense? There's some metrics that we're just going to avoid. And even attendance. Size. Our conversation is not going to become how do we grow? How do we grow? How do we grow? How do we, how do we go from 30 to 60? How do we go from 60 to 120? It's not going to be our conversation. How do we emphasize? How do we use the 30 that we have to live for the city? That's the conversation we're going to have. 
And we believe that when the 30 that we have lives for the city, and the city begins to thrive, Jeremiah says, you will thrive. Changing the measurements. Changing the conversation. Making sure that our conversations reflect and represent why we exist. Because if we don't understand why we exist, we're going to slip back into measuring our winning or losing according to the same measurements that everybody is choosing from. I just... I know personally... I didn't step into this journey to live by the same metrics. I just didn't. And, and, and I am thrilled that any one of you and all of you are with us on this journey for whatever reason you came. And if you came because you love the environment on Sunday, we want to make that environment better. We want to continue to consider what culture we're breeding and what we're doing. How do we do it better? If you came because somebody loved you when you came and greeted you, we want to continue to have the conversation. How do we greet and love people better? We want to do all those things well and continue to evolve and create the culture that we want to create, but ultimately creating that culture only has its maximum impact if we're reaching and being part of the city too. I think it's important to remember not it could be perceived as being selfish not the blessings we receive but, but the blessing that you feel inside doing, doing, I had a conversation with Zach the other day about someone helping him with a bag of ice you know and something he saw in this gentleman's eyes that helped him a lot of times I feel bad or I hate it, but I almost felt good. Like he felt so good doing this for me. Even the littlest thing, you know, it's important to remember. Yeah. Not in a selfish way, but. There's joy that comes from fulfilling our purpose of servants instead of pursuing our everything. We do get to live out a, a really unique joy that the Holy Spirit gives us from that. Our purpose is to increasingly worship, obey, and be transformed by Jesus and help others do the same. But the reason we exist is to bridge the city and the church so that those who don't even think about these things, right? So that those who don't even think about Jesus, who don't even think about worshiping, obeying, or considering His gospel, we exist to bridge the city and the church so that those who don't think about them can find a home-like environment where they can engage in the process. Do we have to continue to help one another abide in Jesus and grow up in obedience and worship of Jesus and help each other be transformed by Jesus? Yes, we have to. And we have to continue to live to bridge that connection between the city and the church. And when we do... And we've created that culture here. Jesus is king in this place. Then when others come in, they find that home. But if we only create the home, 
And we only try to be the best music people. We only try to be the best this people. We only try to use these metrics and we never live to be that connection point. Then those people still don't ever think about these things. They still don't ever care about these things. So we do both. We do both. Jesus fulfilled his purpose by becoming a slave that others would become free. Jesus became a slave so that others would become free. He gave his life as a ransom, the payment, so that Mark could become free from sin and death, so that Stephen could become free from sin and death. Jesus paid your debt with his blood. He gave himself to be a slave so that you could be free. And we're going to do the same thing for the city. We become servants of the city, for the city, so that the city might have the opportunity to be set free. That's what we do. That's what we do. Anybody got a closing thought, comment, question? Clock's over. And it's almost like I realize like there's so much of this like laziness and selfishness in all that. Like when I think about myself on that, like anything, it's almost like I want to like uh, drums or anything I've ever like, put my hand to, you know, I want to I want to get to the point where I can relax and stop worrying about hey, if they're getting better than me. It's like I want to get so good that I don't have to worry about it anymore and that they can't catch up to me and I can stop trying. Mm-hmm. Like that's what I'm striving for. I think that's what we Simon made a comment. He said, we don't compare ourselves. He said, the pe- people playing the infinite game don't compare themselves against others. They compare themselves against themselves. Are we increasing the culture that needs to be increased? Are we doing better at providing what we say we provide to those we provide it to? So we don't, we don't say, are we doing better than they are? Are we doing better than we did? 
right? Because we're not playing a finite game where somebody's going to win and lose. We're playing an infinite game where there's always progress. Are we, are we doing better than we did? That's why when this summer started, I told you guys we're going to, we're going to have people gone. Sundays are going to be less people. It's going to feel different. It could be a letdown. But we want, we want the summertime to be a place and a time where we move forward and why we exist. And that's why when somebody asked, when somebody, I used to hate people asking me, how's the church going? Because I was measuring by these things and I always felt like we were losing. So I didn't want people to ask me that. Somebody asked me that yesterday. I said, it's going great. It's, it's really been a great summer. They're like, oh, you're growing? I'm like, no, not at all. But we're growing and understanding why we exist and fulfilling our purpose. I look forward to people asking me that question now. Why? Because we've gotten rid of the metrics that everybody else uses. And we've saying, are we better than we were yesterday? Are we fulfilling our why, growing in our vision and in our purpose? Are we better than we were yesterday? Are we doing what we said we exist to do? We are now. We're growing in that. God's shaping all these things. We're not winning or losing. We're just progressing, helping others progress. Anybody else? I apologize to those of you that that made your brain explode and you checked out. But for those of you that engaged in that, I hope, I hope we see why we exist on a different playing field. We are for the city. We are for the city. We want to focus on our why. We want to focus on our why. Otherwise, we're going to say, how much money's in the bank? How many people are in the seats? So that we can measure our success or failure. We're not going to exist to measure our success or failure by dollar signs and butts. We're going to measure by progress. Are we fulfilling our why? Okay. Before the city, Jesus became a ransom, a slave, so that others could be free. How do you become free? You put all your hope in the person of Jesus. If you have hope in yourself, you're a slave to winning or losing. If you're a slave to sinning or doing good. If you have your hope in Jesus, you're free. You're free from your failures. You're free from your regret. You're free from your own metrics. Because Jesus is the standard. Your hope is in Jesus. And all the hope that you have on yourself, that you carry, that you rise and fall every day. Man, I did good today. Man, I suck today. All that's gone. How do you become set free? Put all that hope on Jesus because Jesus covered the cost of your sin, became a payment for you so that you could no longer be a slave to sin, a slave to yourself, a slave to death, but now you're free. Free from yourself, free from your sin, and free from death. You put all your hope in Him to be set free. That's what He did. And we are going to go become servants of the city so that they could know that same thing, that same person, that same freedom. I'm going to pray for you. Don't forget to pick up a Benton Courier somewhere. You probably hadn't read a paper in paper form in a long time. Support the city. Buy their paper today. Right? Okay, cool. God, we thank you for this morning. I pray, Father, that something that 
that we've seen and heard and, and read out of your word this morning would just click in our minds and that you would redirect us in a better way.